Egyptians that have spent hours and hours properly lighting the scene. Calls for the lights, calls for the cameras to start rolling because that's what's going to record this whole event. And then he calls for action. When you stop and think about it, maybe there's some parallels there to the Christian life. You know, there's the lights, the preparation that has been made in your lives, the transformation that Jesus has made in your life, uh, the study that has gone on, all of the knowledge of the Bible, the lights, the cameras come on. Okay, it's getting ready for action time now. And so people start looking at you. And then Jesus calls you to action. And that's what's going to be the title of our series. It's going to be called Action. Because when we study the book of Acts, a lot of times you'll hear it phrased as the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, in many Bibles, it'll say that right there on the title page. It'll say, Acts of the Apostles. I don't like that too much because I think it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God has indwelt the lives of these apostles, and now we get to see what happens after their training period of three years with Christ, walking around, being discipled by him. Now, what actions do they perform? Now, the same preparation has been made in our lives as well. There's been a lot of study, a lot of preparation that Jesus has made, a lot of transformation that has taken place in your life. And now we're going to get to a point where it's time for us to act. And so we're going to take a look. And today we're going to study uh, the first part of the first chapter of the book of Acts. And we're going to see a little introduction because there's some stuff that we need to know. And so let's take a look at your outline there. Uh, The things that we need to know. Uh, The number one thing is uh, the former account. We need to know the former account or the former book. Now, the writer of Acts is Luke. Now, Luke is a doctor, and he has uh, watched Jesus very closely. He has documented that. In fact, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. If you wanted to think of Acts as Acts could really be subtitled Luke 2. Okay? He records all the activities of Jesus up until the time that he leaves, He departs the earth. And now, what happens to the apostles? What happens to the disciples? What happens to the followers of Christ now that Christ has left? You know, you would think that they would just go to pot, right? You know, in fact, when we see the disciples, we see them uh, resorting back to their former way of life. Jesus is gone. They're checking him in a quandary. They really don't know what to do. And so they go back to fishing. And Jesus, just before he leaves, he finds them fishing. And he has a little encounter there with Peter and with the disciples. And he... uh, prepares food for them, and then he gets ready and he leaves. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, and we're going to need to figure out who Theophilus was, I wrote all about about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, in his gospel, I want you to circle two words there. Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus did some things, and he taught some stuff. In fact, what he taught was very reflective of what he did in his life. And so he says, I recorded all of that. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now, if you think about all those things he's just written there, you could see all those things recorded in the book of Luke. In fact, might be a good thing for us to go back this next week and just scan through, and I would suggest that you read through the book of Luke this this next week so that you can catch up on what Luke here says 
he has written his former account about. Now, he mentions this, and he addresses a person, and we see it really as a person. He says, in the, my former book, Theophilus. Now, anybody know what Theophilus means? And that's the, the next thing we need to know here is Theophilus. What did Theophilus mean? What, did that, what does that word mean? Now, you Greek students in the crowd here know that theos means... Starts with a G, ends with a D. God. God. Oh, yeah. Theos is the Greek term for God. Okay, theos. You know, you think about theophanies in the Old Testament. That's the appearances of God in the Old Testament. Okay, now theos is God. And phylos, which is phileo, means brotherly. Oh, gee. Okay, we're going to have a class this next Monday on Greek words. No, not really. Uh, Theos means God, and phylos, theophilus, phileo, means love. Okay, it's a brotherly kind of love. So theophilus means loved by God. Now, there's a lot of indications that uh, this is a direct person, and, and as he writes this, it really appears as if he's writing to a real, genuine person. However, some people believe that loved by God, how many of you are loved by God? Okay, it could be directed toward you, couldn't it? Okay, we're all loved by God, and so they say in a very general sense, we could take this as an address to ourselves. Okay, that's, a, that's one way of thinking about it. Another theory is that Theophilus was a very wealthy man. Okay, and as a wealthy man, he was influential, and he lived in the city of Antioch. In fact, there's some archaeological evidence of a Theophilus who lived there in Antioch, was a very wealthy man, a man of influence. Could have been directed to him. Another theory is that Theophilus is the Roman lawyer who represented Paul uh, in his trials in Rome. A lot of people like that one because it makes a really cool story, first of all. Uh, but a lot of people like that because it, it, it does bring some connection and a love that uh, Luke might have there with, with, with um, Theophilus. So Theophilus is a man of influence. We know that. He's a man loved by God. We know that. And quite possibly he could have been representative of Paul while he was uh, defending Paul. And Luke would have met, known that and said, hey, that guy is a real genuine person loved by God. Now, which of those is it? I don't know. Nor do you. But the important thing is, is that all of us could say we're loved by God. So this is direct influence on us and has a direct impact upon us so that we could learn from it. There's another thing here that we want to take a look at, and that is the 40 days. It says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Now, why would Luke include 40 days? It could have said, look, Jesus appeared to the the apostles over a period of time, uh, an extended period of time, a short period of time. He could have said a lot of things, but he says 40 days. Now, 40 days is kind of an interesting time frame when we think about biblical uh, revelations. And and 10 times in the Bible, there are references to 40 segments of time. It could be years, it could be months, it could be days. Uh, But 40 days is a significant number. And so, therefore, we need to take a look at what it really means means because how long was Moses on the mountain remember Moses on the mountain 48. he was 40 days right 40 days on the mountain now was Moses fasting during those 40 days yes. yeah kind of interesting did he drink in those 40 days uh, no. yeah it indicates that he didn't drink for 40 days that's a pretty miraculous thing 40 days with God on a mountain didn't drink that's pretty impressive so 40 days, you know, this word 40 starts gaining some significance in our minds. There's also an account of 
uh, 40 nights, uh, 40 days uh, of Moses on the mountain, 40 nights the Israelites, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was on the mountain. 40 years, the Israelites wandered where? In the desert. 40 years. Significant number again. 40 years. And uh, why did they wander in the desert so long? Was that the way God had planned it from the beginning? Not really, huh? Because they they had been directed to go on and move on. And what did they say? They had a little... Uh, Baptist business meeting. And they got all together, and they had a little business meeting, and, and got, hey, I want you to move on. And they said, uh, no, I don't think we're going to move on because there's giants in the land. And they will treat us like grasshoppers. They'll step on us and squash us like grapes. They will, they will abuse us. They will not be kind to us. We can't do it. So they voted God out. You know, They overruled God's command and said, no, I won't do it. And it sounds to me like a lot of Christians today, you know, when God asks us to do something challenging, oh, we can't do that. No, God, we can't. And when we forget oftentimes that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that's what we're going to be studying for this next period through the book of Acts, the empowerment of the Spirit. So 40 days, uh, 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. Now, Jesus fasted in the wilderness for how long? 40 days again. And we see this 40 number coming up over and over again. How long was Jesus on the earth after his fiction? You'd be right to say 40 days. Yeah, days. Now, there's something significant about this 40, so let's figure out what that is. The, the 40, whatever it is, period of time, whether it be days, months, or years, is a period of testing. Okay? Testing. Think about this. Moses on the mountain, 40 days with, in the presence of God. He's on the mountain, 40 days, and he's being tested. He's fasting. He's not drinking. He's not eating. He's just in the presence of God being tested for who he is. Okay? Also, when we think about Jesus uh, wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, they're being tested by God, aren't they? Is their faith truly devoted to God, or is it more for their comfort? Is it more for their safety? Are they concerned about other things? So there's the testing there. Jesus, uh, 40 days after his crucifixion, he's testing his disciples to make sure that they have what they need in order to carry on. So there's this period of testing, and it goes on. It's kind of like maybe a trial or a probation uh, or maybe even chastisement, but never is it punishment, never punishment. And this 40-day, month, year period of time always ends with a period of restoration or revival. Okay, Think about it. Jesus is on the earth after his crucifixion for 40 days. And the last thing we find recorded in some of the Gospels is his encounter with Peter. And what did Peter do? He denied him three times. And at the end of that 40 days, what did, do you love me? Oh, yeah, I do. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, really, Peter? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. you love me, Peter? Yes, of course I do. Then go feed my sheep. And I don't think Peter grasped it at the time, but he did not. He gave him three opportunities to reaffirm his love for him. And through that, Peter, I think, eventually gets to that point where he goes, oh, I get it. I get it. So there's that restoration that happens after this 40-day period where Jesus is on the earth. So 40 days is a significant event here. He says, and he appeared to them over a period of, of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Okay, there's this kingdom of God that's coming. Now, what did they think about the kingdom of God? They thought the kingdom of God, they really had this physicality associated with this kingdom of God mentality, the Messiah. Jesus is going to come on the earth and he's going to establish 
his kingdom rule on earth. And he's going to take care of the Romans. He's going to take care of whoever's oppressing us at the time. He's going to take care of business. So that leads us to the second thing here that we need to know. And that is the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Okay? And he communicates with you. A lot of times you'll sense, sense uh, something's not right. Or I'm not behaving properly. Or there's something I need to do. Many times, that's the Holy Spirit of God living in you, prompting you to take action. Now, let's take a look at verses 5 through 8. Here's what Luke records for Theophilus. For John baptized with water. Right Way back at the beginning of Jesus' um, sojourn on the earth, he comes and starts to establish. He's 30 years old. He comes to establish his, uh, his ministry here to the, Gentile, uh, to the Jewish people. And he comes to John to be baptized. And so he's, John baptized him with water, correct? So he says, John baptized with water, but in a few days, you guys, you apostles, are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, is this something new to them, this baptism of the Holy Spirit? You know, we might think that it kind of is because we've never heard this yet before unless we read the Old Testament quite well. And in the Old Testament, we're going to get to a passage in Joel where it talks about this coming of the Spirit of God and it's going to rest on people and they're going to do some really miraculous things. We're going to get to that in a minute. Okay, so now they're, remember, their thinking is when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to come in a physical form. There's going to be a government. Remember uh, uh, James and John? What did they want to do? They wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand during this kingdom. They wanted to be the vice presidents of the kingdom of God. And so they have this idea that there's going to be some kind of government set up. There's going to be some kind of rulership set up. And they wanted to be a couple of the top dogs on that. And, uh, and Jesus said, hey, that's not mine to give to you. So therefore, they come around now and they get another dose. He says, they gathered around him and asked him, uh, okay, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, notice what they t- changed. Jesus often talks about the kingdom of God, right? How do they interpret that kingdom of God? The kingdom of Israel. Okay, we're going to have a kingdom. We're going to have a power. We're going to have a, a country. We're going to have some status. We're going to have some influence in the world. And we're going to have independence, We're not going to be ruled by Rome anymore. We're going to have our own thing. So they misinterpret this whole kingdom of God, and they kind of tip their hand here when they talk about, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but now, what does Jesus do here? Or what does Luke do here? He reminds them that Jesus diverted their attention from this earthly kingdom. And he says, but, but, I don't know, you don't know when that's going to happen. It's not for you to know. He doesn't answer their question, yes or no. He says, that's not the time. And that's not the important thing that I want to get across to you. In verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Okay? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, how did these guys get so confused that they interpret the kingdom of God as the kingdom of Israel? Well, let me draw your attention to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. This is an Old Testament prophet 
The people of Israel knew their Old Testament prophets. They knew what they had predicted. And here's what Joel predicted would happen. And afterward, this is God speaking to the nation of Israel. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now, the Israelites are waiting for this. They want the spirit of God to come on them. And notice what they say. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Okay, they'll tell you the word of God. They might even foretell what the future might be. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, they have that in their head. And now, what did Jesus do? He said this, but in a, in a few days, John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They conjoin those two things. The Spirit of God being poured out on them was what Joel was talking about. We're going to prophesy. We're going to dream dreams. We're going to see visions. Even the servants are going to be able to be empowered by God. And so they say, oh, good. That means that the kingdom of Israel is going to rise now. No. He says, that's not the time. That's not important for you. What you need to know is that you are going to be my witnesses. I want you to circle that word, witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. First of all, here in Jerusalem. Then it's going to go out to Judea, the countryside. And then it's going to go to Samaria, the next nation over. And then it's going to go to the entire world. It's going to have this this epicenter here. And all these concentric circles of influence are going to go out from this place. And it's going to influence farther and farther and farther away. Because, not because you're so concerned about Israel becoming a kingdom, but because you're going to be my witness. Now, what does a witness do? And there's a place for you to fill this in. A witness is designed to declare something that they have personally experienced. When you go to court and you've seen an accident or you've seen a crime committed and you go to court, they will always ask you, what did you see? What did you hear? What was done in that situation? Describe to me what you personally experienced. Don't tell me what somebody else has said to you because that's hearsay and that doesn't count in court. The same thing is true when we are witnesses of God. When you're a witness for somebody, don't go and say, hey, you know what? Pastor Mike told me last week in church that, 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 that. That's not witnessing. Witnessing is telling of your personal experience with the God of the universe and letting them know what happened to you. Now, that could be your personal experience when you came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You confessed of your sin. You confessed that you would follow Christ for the rest of your life, whatever that might be and whatever the circumstances around that were. That could be a witness. But it could also be, hey, this last week I was reading in the Word of God. Here's what God shared with me. That's a witness to what he has done. Maybe seeing the the fires out here, you know, that are surrounding us and saying, you know what? We prayed. We did this. We did that. We saw God do this. Okay? And we have a personal experience with Dan and Susan. Uh, Susan's house was in jeopardy. They had to vacate. They had to, uh, to leave. And now today, they're back home. Okay? Safe, sound, secure, no harm done. God did that. So that's a witness to what God can do through the power of prayer. So we talk about that kind of stuff. Something we declare, something that we personally experienced. Okay, there's a third thing that we need to know here, and that kind of summarizes the, the last part of the first 11 verses, and it is the guarantee. There's a guarantee that we're going to get, we're going to receive, and it's in the form of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. After this, 
after he said this, rather, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, after Jesus does all this stuff at the end of the book of Luke, he says that he was raised, he left, left the earth right before their very eyes. Circle that phrase because that's an important phrase. We think back to the Old Testament. Remember there was a couple of prophets. There was Elijah. Remember the life of Elijah? He was an Old Testament prophet. He went around and he tried to instruct the people and get them to be heads up. Uh, and they kind of followed that. And as he got older, he brought along a young man that was going to take his place. His name was Elisha. Okay, Elisha and Elijah. Elijah's the older guy and he's getting ready to go. And, uh, and one of the things that Elisha asks of Elijah was, I want a portion of the power that God has given to you. I want a portion of that. And he says, I'll tell you what, you'll get that, but you have to be with me when I leave this earth. You have to see that happen. You have to be there. Now, it's interesting if you read that last part of Elijah's life. He's going here, he's going there, he's going to Bethel, he's doing all kinds of things. And he tells Elisha, he says, I want you to wait here. Wait here, I'm going to go over here and do something. And what does Elisha do? Elisha says, oh no, you're not. You're not getting out of my sight because I know that when you leave this earth, if I'm there, I'll get a portion of your spirit. So you're not getting away from me. No, I'm following you here. Another time he says, okay, I'm going to go over here. I want you to wait here for me. He goes, no, I know that if I don't go with you and you leave, I'm not going to get the, that portion of the spirit that I so desire. And so I'm going to follow you. Eventually, he's with Elijah when he gets taken to heaven. Now, Elijah doesn't die. He just goes to heaven. And Elisha saw that happen. Now, the nation of Israel knows this story very well. And they know that, that the significance of that. Now, Elisha is going to receive a portion of the power of God that Elijah had because he was there and saw him ascend to heaven. Now, with that in mind, us good Jewish people, with that in mind, after he said this, he was taken up, circle those words, before their very eyes. They get a portion of that spirit of God now in them. And it's going to come in the form of this Holy Spirit. So they saw the significance of this far better than we have ever seen the significance of this, correct? You know, we think circumstantial, you know, it's just, and maybe it's just a phraseology. Maybe it's just a way that Luke chose to communicate. But now we know that there's some real significance to taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. And here's what they said in verse 11. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He said, this is not the end. And you can imagine, remember they, they were so forlorn when Jesus died that they went back to fishing. And they said, oh, we don't know what to do. We're going to do what we know to do. We're going to go fish. And now they have this vision of a bright future because Jesus is going to return one day and he's going to come and judge the earth. You know, how have the people done in following him? He's going to come in judgment of that. But he's also going to come in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come, and we're going to see this next week. The Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to indwell the lives of the believers. He's going to give them power that they never knew they had. He's going to give them a mission that they never knew they could accomplish. He's going to give them the vision to see what could happen if they just yielded to the power that lives within them. So now I ask you this question. 
what actions will the Holy Spirit produce through you? You know, what actions will the Holy Spirit produce through you? We've just finished a study of the book of Mark, and we've seen what Jesus did. So we know how to model those things. Now we're going to see what will happen if we just allow the Spirit of God to dwell in us, to empower us, to envision us, to go out and do something, maybe on the miraculous side, maybe on the routine side. But if we allow the Holy Spirit of God to empower us to do something that we didn't think we could do, all of a sudden, God's power shows up. God has made manifest among us, and his glory is known. 